Joining us today on Banter is Jason Blessing, who recently joined us here at AEI as a Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow. Uh, He focuses largely on cybersecurity, military cyber forces, military technological transformation, and U.S. cyber defense policy. He also studies NATO and broader strategic challenges to transatlantic relations. He was previously a postdoctoral fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and a consulting fellow with the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's also worked in the financial sector as a fraud operations analyst and a financial services representative. His most recent book, The Global Spread of Cyber Forces, was published in 2021. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Jason. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Phoebe, it's great to have Jason with us, uh, partly because he represents a really nifty, cool thing we have here at AI, which is the Gene Kirkpatrick Fellowship. Which gives us, as I understand it, Jason, <laughs> make sure I get this right because you're in it. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to have here for a couple years an emerging scholar star in the field and let them learn what the think tank and public policy world is like and get some things published and and learn from our, our resident scholars. And is that is that how you see it? And, and, and tell us how you feel about the Gene Kirkpatrick Fellowship in relation to your career or the career of other young uh, PhDs in foreign policy. Right. It's honestly, it's a great opportunity. And the way that I approach it and the way that most scholars in my position who are, you know, have either changed careers like I did to, you know, try and stake out the academic path and, you know, do research. Uh, it gives us the ability to work on those policy chops, right? Like the one thing that we are very good at doing coming out of graduate school and PhDs is we're really good at doing the academic research. But the, what I've learned and I'm still, you know, working on, you know, every day, every hour of the day is figuring out where the rubber meets the road and how to put this sort of theoretical and methodological knowledge that we have to actual real world issues, right? Uh, and for instance, Danny, who Danny Pletka, who helps run the fellowship, uh, has been an excellent mentor and really gives helpful feedback in the way that you can develop those skills better. She's really good at showing you, okay, this is what you're good at doing. Here's what you can do to actually, you know, make the conversation more accessible. So that that's that's great, and we love that. And we've had a lot of really wonderful people that have been in the fellowship, and you're one of them. So we're really glad to have you. The thing that you focus on, and and it's kind of the issue of the day in some respects, is cyber warfare and and and, and issues concerning cyber. And so I want to dive right into that and get right to the most important issue in the world right now, and the role that cyber is playing in addressing it. And that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, 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 and the various parties that are fighting back and the role cyber is playing in that, um, in that conflict. And so I'd like to take us through the various players. So there's Ukraine, there's the United States, there's NATO, there's non-state actors who I would love to hear about. Um, how are these four various parties, and then maybe there are others, doing and what are they doing? What is, a, what is an example of a really successful cyber thing that's happening now in Ukraine by one of those players, just so we know what it is? Uh, sort of a broad stroke answer to that question is the most successful thing that's happening right now is that nothing major has happened. Uh, and so let's- In other words, it's the defense against the Russian efforts. Right, and it's, it's the resilience of Ukrainian networks and Ukrainian personnel. Uh, and so let's, let's kind I of- I have to just stop you there because yeah. that disappoints me a little bit because, it's, okay, it's good to play good defense, fine. 
And Colin Kitchen was on our banter a little while mm-hmm. ago, remember? Yep. And he said, well, one thing we're good at is stopping that. Yeah. And, okay, fine. But I, but I want to get them sons of God. You know, I mean, I want to, what are we doing to them? Are we doing nothing? So from the U.S. perspective, uh, the biggest success that we've had right now, uh, and it just came out publicly in uh, General Nakasone, the head of U.S. Cyber Command and director of the NSA. Now we're getting somewhere. Is our information sharing that we've had with Ukraine in our ability to, this you know wasn't previously disclosed, is we're sharing threat intel actively with them on what's going on in the Russian ecosystem. And so that's a form of cyber warfare, just intel- really good technological intelligence. Is that what it is? So I am generally, full, full disclaimer, I am generally hesitant to use the phrase cyber warfare. Okay. Uh, there is a proclivity to get good. caught good. up in... Okay. It's very good to get the president the corrected. Mm-hmm. That's good. I like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's... I'm sorry. I take it back. Take Apology it back. accepted. Olivia uh, can't edit it out. <laughs> it happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, because there's a proclivity in there to sort of resort to Hollywood scenarios when really the more important stuff is the boring stuff that happens. Okay, so give us some boring stuff. Uh, so, for instance, like, uh, so we're sharing threat intelligence, and one of the boring things that we did in the lead-up to this illegal invasion of Ukraine is we sent our hunt forward teams, U.S. Cybercom sent hunt forward teams into Ukraine. And so what does this mean? Well, we deploy some of our U.S. Cyber Command personnel to go and, you know, help them scan, clean out their networks of any malware, disclose any threats. You know, obviously we have some skin in the game because it helps well, us hold, learn. hold on yeah. there. Now, now, now you're telling me something that I did not know. You're telling me that United States Department of Defense personnel or contract personnel have been deployed to Ukraine to, or were deployed to Ukraine to help them with their uh, cyber protections. Prior to the invasion. Prior to the invasion. And this is a common thing. Like we did it in 2019, 2020 with Montenegro before their election. Uh, We've done this in the Baltics. Uh, So this is, this is part of the, the larger effort that the U S has undertaken, you know, since basically 2014 uh, and the illegal annexation of Crimea uh, we've thrown a lot of money and a lot of effort into helping and, and deployment of people. You just said before right. the invasion, right? And this is, I mean, this is so this would be United States Department of Defense personnel flying to Ukraine and working with their techies to protect their systems, right? And this is, you know, this is much earlier than. So well, I got it. I, yeah. I got it. But yeah. I just <clears throat> and I'm, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm sounding naive. Of course, there are United States personnel in Ukraine. Prior to the invasion, I guess I'm not making. I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but the point is, is that uh, we would call that technical expertise, technical advice, technical right. assistance provided by very highly qualified United States um, citizens uh, who've gone to Ukraine to help them protect their absolutely. Systems. And okay. one of the one of the and when you heard that, you said that's good news. Yeah, it is absolutely. And also, I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, any of the intelligence that we help uncover on their network serves our own national purposes, right? Uh, so it's a win-win, in my opinion. Uh, and okay, this is, so that's yeah. one thing. That's good. What else? Uh, we've also, so as, a, as an effect of that, we've seen that uh, the Ukrainians uh, have built a lot more resilience in their, just their public and private networks uh, and their ability to back up and secure their own data. Uh, and part of that has also been the, as the conflict has, you know, sort of drawn out longer than the three days that Putin thought it would, uh, we've seen a lot more activity from the U.S. private sector in helping, uh, you know, restore bandwidth, secure data, particularly from Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Yeah, yeah I want to uh, get to that. I really yeah. want to get to that. But before I, 
Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. It's Google too. Google did something with GPS where they shut down the GPS for the. They say, did you know this? Yes. Uh, the uh, I can't exactly recall all of the details, but uh, you're right. They they uh, Zelensky requested yes. that they dismantle the GPS facility so the so Russians they couldn't track could not, sensitive targets. Oh, well, that's interesting. You heard that. Well, the way it was described to me was that the Russian army could not use Google Maps to find their way around Ukraine. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the, the other side of that is, you know. <laughs> yeah. We all rely on Google to get from, you know, I, from, from here to the White House. Which right. is I mean, ridiculous. you would see the invasion as like a traffic jam on Google Maps, yes. too, and it was yeah. like still coming. It was right. very interesting. And that's yeah. one of the reasons that was super impactful. And, you know, we can believe this at some point in the discussion about Russia's efforts in the cyber domain is, you know, when you take down this open source, uh, you know, ability to track where you are in real time, uh, that has a major effect since uh, the Russian military has been using civilian cell phones and civilian radio waves to communicate. So they haven't been using secure military networks to, you know, coordinate their assaults or their positions. So when you're relying on civilian infrastructure, you know, then civilians can take it down. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. It goes both ways. <clears throat> so let's go back to the, the, the protections so are you saying that because of our efforts and Ukraine's efforts to protect their systems, the Russians were not able to turn off the electricity, uh, interrupt the communication ability of Zelensky and his generals to talk to each other, other things that would have dismantled or upset or undermined the stability of the Ukraine regime? Is that what you're saying was protected? Yes, and that's that's one side of the <clears throat> coin, right? The one side of the coin in this conflict is – Ukrainian defense and resiliency in cyberspace is much better than we anticipated. The other side of the coin, however, is the Russian military has been wildly incompetent and has been constrained by their own early strategy in uh, in the beginning of the conflict. Okay, well, have the Ukrainians, let's start with them, been able to do something affirmative or aggressive, not, not, not protection against the Russians? Have they interrupted the communication strategy of the Russians? Have they you know, dismantled their ability to shoot their weapons. I mean, is there have they been able to do anything in cyber attack that has been harmful to the Russians? Not that I've seen. Uh, and this is a product of uh, <clears throat> essentially, you know, their defensive teams and their computer emergency readiness teams are uh, essentially drinking from a fire hose, right? It's the, the sheer uh, number of attempted intrusions, uh, you know, even low-level intrusions that are very basic, uh, like, you know, trying to, force hack a password uh, to get credentials uh, or distributed denial of service where you're just trying to overload a server with traffic to take it temporarily offline. Uh, this has occupied a ton of time. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's also a question of to what degree does Ukraine have the capability to conduct network attacks? Yeah. It's not what the U.S. has by any means uh, or even some of our European partners in NATO. Uh, but it's, you know, they're much busier. Their attention is on the defensive end for understandable reasons. How do you read the kind of lack of sophistication in Russian cyber activity so far? I mean, after years, especially from the U.S. perspective of hearing about how Russia's cyber intelligence is so good, their misinformation is so skillful, I think it's very surprising to see that kind of parallel to what they're doing militarily, it doesn't seem very sophisticated or aggressive, or it seems like we've kind of misunderstood their capabilities. My take is two things. Uh, First, where they are very good is espionage, right? Uh, and this is, in particular, we forget how impactful Solar Winds was. The Russians were able to hack 
one company's piece of software and downstream compromise you know, a number of Fortune 500 companies and U.S. government agencies, that's a big deal, that you're no longer hacking one immediate target. You're going up the supply chain to get ac- downstream access to a bunch of uh, other sensitive organizational information. So that's, they are good at espionage. Mm-hmm. What they're not so good at, it seems, is integrating these cyber capabilities with their conventional capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, our colleagues like uh, Giselle Donnelly uh, and Fred Kagan and Leon Aaron, uh, a point that they have been very strong in making is that combined arms operations have never been the Russian strong suit, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I absolutely agree with that in cyberspace, right? It is, in, it is really hard when you don't, when you have the capability, but you don't have the organizational or strategic uh, means to integrate that into broader military capability, you're not set up for success in mm-hmm. you know actual conventional attacks. Uh, at the same time, early strategy has really hamstrung what was even possible in cyberspace. Right? If your if your goal is to take Kiev, occupy it, and put install a puppet regime, you don't want to obliterate infrastructure. Right? If you break it, you buy it in that scenario. Um, and the fact that they thought this would be a sort of a quick smash and grab and be welcome with open arms, there's no need to put the time, the resources, the money, and the personnel, uh, and just the operational control into a cyber operation that's highly sophisticated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things are incredibly hard to do, uh, and it's, you know, your time frame and your costs don't justify the use of cyber operations in that context. Mm-hmm. One of the things that seems really interesting to me about cyber is that a lot of times you do get kind of lone wolf actors or people that, you know, make cyber strikes and then governments claim responsibility for them. Is this an indication to you at all that the Kremlin may have kind of taken credit for some attacks that they were not directing? Maybe they don't have that organizational capability? Well, it usually, in my experience, it runs the other way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the abdication of, you know, uh, ownership uh, where most governments really don't want to disclose that they were behind something. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, you see, you know, the, the Kremlin's MO has been for a lot of things to let the criminal underground and a lot of these ransomware organizations and other criminal groups mm-hmm. uh, to let them sort of have free reign as long as they don't attack Russian networks, right? It's been an unspoken rule if it's something operates, uh, you know, under the Cyrillic alphabet, if you touch it, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... They have the capability to undertake sophisticated cyber operations, right? Uh, and, for instance, the, one of the operations that everyone refers to is the NotPetya worm from 2017, where, yes, it did spiral out of control and wound up hitting you know, back in Russia, but it spread to over 150 countries, uh, deleted a ton of data, and roughly about $10 billion worth of damages worldwide. Uh, they have the sophistication, mm-hmm. uh, but they – the gloves have sort of come off from that sophistication. Uh, so to get into the little bit of the weeds, technically, not Petya was uh, wiperware, which is a virus or a category of malware that looks to just delete data off of your computer, right? Uh, it was disguised as ransomware. So it was disguised as, oh, hey, make a payment. We're encrypting all your files. Of course, we'll unlock them once we get the money. Whoops. The goal is actually to delete it. What we've seen in Ukraine, particularly in the early days, is we've seen at least five, some projections have been up to eight of uh, different wiper worms that aren't masquerading as ransomware. They're just flat out trying to delete data as efficiently as possible on networks. Uh, So there is sophistication, but they're also not trying to hide what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I want to go back to what you said, you alluded to uh, a moment ago, where you said that the Ukraine may not have the ability to be assertive, or proactive in, in cyber activities in a, in a war situation, but the United States is. And so I wanted to ask, has the United States, remember, we're doing a lot of assertive things. We're sanctioning them, we're you know, seizing assets, we're providing lots of weapons, we deployed personnel prior to the invasion to help on this. So are we holding something back in cyber uh, that's still in our arsenal if we wanted to? And what's your view on why on what on whether we should use it or not? So yes, we have a lot of capabilities that we are holding back, right? Uh, particularly since uh, mm-hmm. the commander's vision document that came out of Cyber Command in 2018, where we took a more forward-footed stance into you know this the idea of defending forward, taking down threats at the source through persistent engagement of adversaries in cyberspace, you know, on their home turf, essentially. Okay. Uh, we we have evidenced that we've really got the chops and the ability and the capabilities to, for instance, wreak havoc on Russia's ransomware ecosystem. We've taken down a number of ransomware gangs that were doing some really nasty stuff to the public and private sectors here in the U.S., uh, we also do have the ability, and I would not be surprised if we have some really good footholds in Russian networks. Uh, so I see, I see two problems here, right? Uh, one is the strategic logic. Do you risk burning an exploit this early? You know, if you've got, uh, if you've identified a vulnerability in, let's say, you know, Russian military network or a network in the Kremlin, do you want to burn? that vulnerability and the exploit that you have to be able to, you know, take advantage of that network. Do you burn it now to disrupt them or do you keep it and continue for intelligence collection purposes, right? So there's a tension between disruption and intelligence collection. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Do is is now the time to, you know, take a more forward stance and burn your intelligence capabilities for disrupting uh, their networks? I don't think we're there yet. Um but the other factor is the risk tolerance of the Biden administration uh, and, you know, the, the hesitancy to rightly or wrongly uh, not get more involved in the conflict. Obviously, that has downhill effects for what Cyber Command does, uh, because let's not forget, even though the dual hat where General Nakasone runs both Cyber Command and the NSA, Cyber Command is still a military organization. And so direct military action against, you know, Russian forces that sort of raises the threshold of involvement, obviously. Right. So what you're saying is like with the MIGs or some other request to the United States to do more, um, cyber comes into the cyber command decisions, plays into that strategic decision as well. Right. And there are, there are, there are ta- tactical reasons why you'd hold some things back. You mentioned those. And there's also just, you know, there's appears to be some line that the Biden administration doesn't want to cross to provoke Russia too severely, and and but that line is still there. We haven't spent it yet. It's still available to us. But I do think that there is an element of destabilization of the Russian economy, of the Russian daily life. I mean, I've seen pictures now of stores with nothing on the shelves. The the citizenry of Russia is beginning to feel the the impact of these sanctions, and and that's not too dissimilar than making them feel the impact of of some sort of cyber attack. I mean, right? So the the way that I look at this is, you know, there's there's two questions here. One, 
uh, would a cyber attack, for instance, on the Russian electrical grid be escalatory, right? Uh, and that's a that's a conversation in my circles that, you know, uh, it's essentially a, you know a circular firing squad where everyone has their own take, and really we don't learn much moving forward. Uh, but what our data says from academic studies is generally it hasn't been escalatory. Cyber operations, granted, we haven't seen really high-end cyber operations uh, on average. Uh, so the question, is it escalatory? Not likely, but the, the second question is, what's the gain, right? Because a lot of what you could do to a network is reversible. Uh, you know, much more than, you know, dropping a bomb on a building uh, or, or dropping a bomb. fix it. Yeah, if you cut fiber optic cables with incidental shelling, that's a lot more damaging than turning the power off for a couple of hours and then, you know, Russia reconfigures its network security. It's harder to get back in again. Especially if, the, if the, you really have to disclose something that I wasn't quite clear on, and that is that cyber is not just about disrupting activities or, you know, cutting off data, stealing data or leading data, it's also about gathering intelligence. Absolutely. And so that if you're going to compromise your intelligence gathering capability because you do something rash that upsets their life for, you know, a couple days, or mm-hmm. then you may have cut your nose off to spite, you know, spite your face, whatever. Spite, to spite your face. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the intelligence <laughs> gathering was really excellent ahead of the invasion. Yeah, that's it, right. It, and that's, yeah. that's where... That's a very good point. You know, I'm not surprised when Nakasone announced that, you know, we have been sharing actively intelligence with the Ukrainians. Um... But that tells me that Cybercom and the NSA is much more involved behind the scenes uh, in doing, you know, the day-to-day boring stuff that really matters. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we – I want to get to um, Cybercom and, and this, this person you keep referring to, I gather, is a major general in the United States military. And I want you to tell us about him and what he does. But before I do that, I want to ask about the non-state players. We've right. talked about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the United States. We've alluded a little bit to NATO. But what is Google and Microsoft and what can they do or other uh, or other just hackers on the street in in Kiev? What can they do or what are they doing to uh, disrupt the Russian forces? So on the private company end, uh, what's been really helpful and in certain extents, again, we've got private information and classified information that we we can kind of guess what's going on. But what we're seeing, at least publicly uh, is that private companies are ahead of the game in terms of threat sharing and threat intelligence, right? And they say, hey, we've seen a new piece of malware. Be careful. Watch out for this. Uh, and that's, you know, the the warnings that we're getting from the U.S. government. Uh, it goes through some different bureaucratic processes, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's still, they're trying to do it as quickly as possible. But So uh, without telling anybody in the public, they're they're communicating to the Ukrainian government or the American government things that they see that maybe may be helpful to them in the fight against Russia. Right. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. They have a, mo- a vested monetary interest in clearing out some of these threats and making them known so that others with the capability to take them down yeah. can do something about I it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, that's that's a, a larger discussion about how you make uh, cybersecurity a good business decision, right? Like, obviously, these tech companies are vested in it. Yeah. Um, but so they're, they're very much helping with intelligence, you know, data backup, offs out-of-country data storage uh, back up for, uh, you know, sensitive Ukrainian systems. Uh, so that's how the private companies are, are helping. Uh, the non-state, other non-state actors, uh, it's been kind of interesting, right, because you would have expected that 
uh, ransomware groups like Conti out of Russia uh, who have a pretty big footprint and are sophisticated in this in this area, you know, you would have expected the Kremlin to loosen the leash a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that against U.S. infrastructure. We've seen, we've seen uh, uh, really more this morning news is coming out, but a little bit yesterday of there's new malware targeting industrial control systems. Uh, but again, this isn't anything major that you know we haven't really encountered before. Uh, so the lack of, you know, ransomware gangs out of Russia is kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, again, though, the question is, do they have a monetary interest? Because they're in it to make money, and that's about it. Uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually more interested in the, the ransomware types and hackers on our side attacking Russia. Is, is any of that happening? So not necessarily from the U.S., but one of the more interesting things that's come out has been uh, one of the Ukrainian ministers, uh, uh, the ministry that's in charge of digital affairs, uh, had called on individual hackers to help yeah. and aid mm-hmm. in the, the, the fight against Russia online. And you've seen some mobilization in Europe, but one of the coolest slash unexpected uh, was a, a fairly well-known hacking group out of uh, Belarus. Uh, who has been, you know, uh, very much standing in opposition to Lukashenko. Uh, and they have been active in targeting Russian networks on behalf of the Ukrainians. Mm. Uh, and, of course, you know, t- targeting Belarusian networks that Lukashenko and the military is running. And active coordination. and effective or active and just making a lot of noise? Well, making a lot of noise can be effective, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. it's, it's a form of harassment. If you can make life a pain for them in any little way, it helps more than not, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's that has been heartening to see that people are, you know, standing up for uh, democratic goals, uh, sort of, you know, mm. even if they find it, you know, fun and entertaining to hack the Russians, you know, good on you, put it to good use. <laughs> so let's talk about the American setup on this. Who who is this Nakasone guy? Who is that, and and where does he sit in the in the federal bureaucracy or the United States? Defense Department, and, and is, he, is he sitting in the right place? Do we have the right amount of resources and personnel deployed to this? And, and does he have the right access to the president? What's, what's your take on that? So uh, my view is Nakasone is the right guy at the right place at the right time for U.S. Cyber Command and the NSA. So he is uh, he's an Army guy, right? He's an Army general, and he, he is a combatant commander. Uh, you know, U.S. Cyber Command is... Same level now that it got elevated to a unified combatant command in 2018. Uh, it's at the same level as Strategic Command, Indo-PACOM, what have you, you know, Eurocom. Uh, so he's does he have stars? Yes, uh, four star is. Okay, so he's a big dog. Yeah, okay. uh, that's and that's what you have to I'm have. Sorry that I don't know this, but I, oh, that's I, I, yeah, that's great. Okay, so uh, yeah, go and that's, ahead. so that's go sort ahead. of the standard for. Okay, uh, so he's he's in the he's in the inner circle. Yeah, and so the the position at the head of U.S. Cyber Command is what we call a dual-hatted position. He also is the director of the NSA, you know, Civilian Intelligence Agency. Okay. Uh, and so it's I've written in my dissertation how this developed, uh, and it's really interesting, the sort of the bureaucratic politics behind it, but it's become wildly effective as, you know, a way of managing this disruption versus intelligence correct, collection trade-off. Wait, wait, is this because of him, or is this the way the role is structured that the – NSA director will also be the commander title. of U.S. Cyber Command. Is that just always true? Yes, and it, it's so. 
I didn't, it was I didn't formalized know under Keith Alexander, okay. uh, who you know helped stand up what became Cyber Command, uh, and he was he was the director of the NSA at the time, uh, so it formalized under him uh, and Bob Gates as Secretary of Defense, right? Okay. Uh, it was officially stood up in 2010, Cyber Command, but the arrangement actually predates Cyber Command to where we had a bunch of joint task forces that were also led by. Uh, at the time, Alexander, but the director of the NSA. So we had Joint Task Force. That, you know, it's an ac- acronym suit, but it was always something that was, uh, you know, okay, global so network. He's apparatus. in the job now. Why he's is he so good? So one of the reasons he's so good is he was the leader. He was the commander that led Joint Task Force Ares. And a little background on that is that was one of our offensive against ISIS. Uh, and Joint Task Force Ares was, you know, under Central Command, under CENTCOM. Uh, and what it was was the first real attempt by the U.S. to integrate our cyber capabilities with on-the-ground kinetic and conventional capabilities. Uh, and so planning for this took over a year. Some of it was a product of protesting by the CIA that, hey, we don't want to disrupt ISIS networks because we're in collecting intelligence. Uh, but at the end of the day, what Joint Task Force Ares did uh, was you know, really make life miserable for ISIS operatives by – changing their passwords, draining their cell phone batteries, you know, disrupting their communications so that we could essentially strike, drop bombs, uh, you know, give ourselves a window of opportunity. Uh, so the fact that Nakasone has the experience of translating, you know, what can be seen as mysterious magical cyber capabilities to, you know, guns and Operational bo- military activity. Right. Uh, you know, he can translate that to the old school bullets, guns, tanks, Guys, it's that translation experience uh, and his actual on-the-ground experience using these capabilities in a combat zone, that is worth its weight in gold right now. So who does he report to? Uh, SecDef. Secretary of Defense. Yes. Yeah, Secretary of Defense. And, and, and I mean, are they at a – do you think he and, and Millie – I mean, I've got a little bit of uh, source over in the Pentagon. Are, are they at a kind of a war footing? I mean, are they are – they, you know, in the war room, I mean, given what's going on, are they monitoring every activity? So my insight is more into Cyber Command specifically. From what I've gleaned from the Department of Defense, um, Austin has kind of been hands-off. Uh, Austin, but I'm but the military guys. Well, the military guys, so there's – Millie's sort of in a different uh, part as, you know, the uh, with the joint staff. But uh, Cybercom has – arguably been on a wartime footing for a while, right? And not necessarily related to Russia and Ukraine. That's a product of constant contact with adversaries in the cyber domain. Uh, You know, it's a 24-7 job. Um, And is he, is he a, I mean, you know, when you think of military guys, you think of, of, you know, I have a son who's in ROTC, is about to be commissioned. So I, you know, I think of people that shoot big guns or drive planes or drive you know, aircraft carriers. Not clicking keyboards. But I don't think about <laughs> I don't think about techies and you know coders. Yeah. Is is he a coder or a techie or what? How did he get this capability? You know, I'm not 100 percent sure of his technical background, but his uh, you know you can read into it. He he is part of uh, what they called the Four Horsemen under uh, this is a little insider ball uh, under Keith Alexander when he was director of the NSA, uh, and so you know you've got. So he's one of them, but then you've got some of the top cyber appointees from in Biden administration are part of that circle. So you've got, on one hand, you've got, and you know, there's there's a technical element in learning that goes along with that. So yes. I 
I am assuming he's got the technical chops, you know, if not to sit and code himself, to understand what that means strategically. So in this area, at least, uh, uh, you know, we at AI spend time evaluating and assessing the capabilities and qualities and the performance of Biden administration appointees um, or executive branch players, appointees or not. In this area, at least, you, you're pretty confident we've got a good group there, that they're, you're, you're, you, you give them good marks. Absolutely. I'm, I am more than happy with the, the leadership that are in these top cyber positions. Full stop. Um, that is kudos to the administration. The one thing that worries me right now, though, uh, as of last week, news has started coming out that the White House is reviewing the interagency process for authorizing offensive cyber operations. Uh, and the reason this concerns me is uh, there was a 2018 executive decree under the Trump administration that al- allowed authority to be delegated down and decisions over certain cyber operations to be delegated down to the commander level to General Nakasone and also the head of the CIA uh, so that they had more flexibility and the ability to act quickly in cyberspace, which cannot be overstated. It's mm-hmm. We need to think about what gets us to operational speed mm-hmm. and decision-making speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are, there are learning curves to that, uh, but one of the things, one of the reasons why Nakasone is the right guy at the right time, is because he's been in the, you know, in these translation positions. He knows how to build partnerships and relationships, you know, not only between Cybercom and the NSA. And I had a, an essay with a colleague Richard Harknett out at Cincinnati, who was a scholar with Cybercom for a while, of how this integrated partnership has really become more effective over time with Cybercom and the NSA. But he's also been building bridges to the private sector, to other intelligence agencies, and reach back to civilian counterparts in the White House and the NSC, the National Security Council. So if we had a different commander in place, I don't think we would have seen as much progress, and we'd see a lot more footstepping that's Mm -hmm. happened. But Mm -hmm. the the problem— Burns is apparently a good guy, too. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, And so, again, the intelligence talent and the cyber talent in this administration is top-notch, top-tier. Uh, even, even at CISA with Jen Easterly in that position, fantastic. But the problem with reviewing a rollback of this is it the risk that there's an undue interagency review uh, mm-hmm. and a cumbersome bureaucratic <clears throat> process like we had in the Obama administration where you know you sacrifice operational effects and operational speed for the sake of a better legal argument over an operation. Mm-hmm. You also give so many more players like the Department of State a veto over military operations. Uh, so that's where I'm at with, you know, this This is a potentially big misstep by the administration. Uh, one other question about sort of operational activities, which these are the sort of activities that how will you know, how will the Russians know or the public know who did it? I mean, isn't there a little bit of mystery there that, that, that it, something could happen and, gee, it wasn't good for the Russians – uh, or the Russians' military, or its ability to operate, or the Russian civilian population, because they've been destabilized. And but you can't draw a finger back and say that Americans did it, or NATO did it, or a private sector company did it, or a non-government hacker did it, or Ukraine did it. Is that true or not true? It's somewhere in between, right? Uh, so context definitely plays a role, right? If if you're in the middle of a war with someone, chances are you know where cyber operations from the other side's coming, right? Uh, there's also, you know, in actually how you carry out an exploit and disruption, 
there's a level of sophistication that state actors like the U.S., you know, even from some of our really capable allies like the Dutch. The Dutch in cyberspace are extremely capable. But there's just a level of sophistication of certain operations that can only be a fingerprinted back to the U.S. or to Russia or et cetera. Uh, and there are, you know, there are also, I don't want to say there are tells, but there are approaches that, for instance, allow us to distinguish between Russian operations and Chinese operations in terms of the way they carry things out and what their goals are. So I know that you've written and a couple, a lot of other people have written this as well, that as the war gets more protracted, it becomes more likely that we'll see a, some kind of cyber strike on the U.S. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about how NATO would react in that situation. I know it, of course, depends like what that kind of strike looks like, but it made me wonder just kind of in this world of cyber warfare, cyber attacks, like, do you think that NATO has parsed through what a cyber act of war is and isn't? Like, what should that threshold be? So this is, uh, thank you for this question because shameless plug, I'll have a piece <laughs> coming out probably by the time this airs uh, in Fox News Opinion online uh, about Article 5 and where's the line, right? Mm-hmm. So what NATO has done very well is think about sort of the high-end scenarios, right, uh, about when and how to integrate conventional capabilities with cyber capabilities in a response, right? NATO's developed a good framework about how allies can volunteer cyber, not necessarily the capabilities that would give you know, insights into sources and methods, but the, they can volunteer the effects and say, hey, I'll do X over here to help out the allied operations. So NATO's done a good job about thinking how to strike back with cyber. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, the, at the same time, Look, I'm not going to knock Article 5 because that is the foundation of NATO, and it still should be. And that includes in the cyber domain, right? Yeah. But the reality is that very few – you know, there's a there's a small set of cyber operations that could realistically trigger an Article 5 collective defense response. Yeah. Uh, and sort of the implicit red line that the alliance has had has been if someone dies. Yeah, I was going to say. Right. <laughs> there's the definition. And so the, the red and, line and is essentially – war doesn't often lead to someone dying. Right, and it could. hasn't. It hasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I mean the, the closest we've had is during the pandemic, uh, ransomware attack on a German hospital as a second or third-hand effect of right. network scheme. Someone passed away. Yeah. Um, but is that cyber war? I would argue no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the question is, you know, where is that threshold? Okay, implicitly it seems like it's death or destruction at the scale of a regular military operation mm-hmm. as a missile strike or, you know, what have you. Uh, it can happen. We have to keep our imagination open uh, because, you know, you don't want to get caught flat-footed. But also that's not where the bulk of NATO's attention should be. And so one of the things that I've very much been pushing for is, again, circling back to, you know, the most effective stuff is usually the most boring, uh, is – resilience and building cyber resilience into NATO more broadly. And I've been I've been working as part of a with the Transatlantic Leadership Network, part of a NATO task force that's been briefing NATO officials. Uh, and part of the report that I contributed to was based off a book chapter I wrote on how do we actually integrate cyber resilience into the alliance's strategic concept that'll be rolled out this summer at the Madrid summit. Mm. Uh, and so I'm I'm very much trying to harp on our attention, at least in the NATO uh, circles, should be on sort of these more boring but more broad and vague and nebulous efforts that we need to crystallize uh, that could undermine military preeminence over time. So I, what is the distinction between a cyber activity that, 
that we're talking about now, doesn't it sometimes intersect with efforts to enhance the level of information that Russian citizens are seeing or getting on their Internet? I mean, why wouldn't – one of the things I'm just completely discouraged by is that the, the sense that I'm getting from people I talk to is that the Russian citizenry now knows less or is less well-informed what's well, really going on than the Soviet citizenry was back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and yet we have the Internet and we have all these enhanced forms of communication. Why can't these cyber techniques be used to make sure that they're seeing images from Ukraine or, or uh, news stories telling the facts or the, the, the rhetoric of the president of the United States? Why is that not part of this? Is, is cyber intersect with efforts to enhance our ability to communicate with people behind, you know, behind these in these autocratic regimes? It certainly can, <clears throat> uh, and in that sense, we would call it something like cyber-enabled information operations, yes. right? Uh, and that's just the use of cyberspace to gain an upper, not information superiority, because something like that is very transient, and that's. Uh, a military phrase and that I hope will just to distribute information. Right. And so that's, you know, on that's a bit of a double edged sword. Right. A- at least in my opinion, because uh, you can have an entity, an intelligence or military entity in the U.S. undertaking an operation like that. And I'm sure we've got some folks, for instance, at Langley that are working on this. Right. But the where the fine line is. You know, in terms of values, how much do you want a democracy active in pumping information into an ecosystem? Right. Uh, you know, if Radio Free Europe. Well, it, but, and what, so that's what, what is that? There's uh, well, exactly you didn't like that. No, you're, I you're loved getting, it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, and particularly it helped us keep a base in the Azores. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I didn't know that, but that's OK. Uh, that's a, that's another. So a little okay. fun factoid is the uh, uh, Haret, the radio uh, network that we had in Portugal uh, was a part of a package to. You know, stay on friendly terms with Salazar and keep a base in the Azores. I see. I see. Okay. Uh, anyway, but no, the uh, you know, it is a fine line, right? Because the question for me is, it's very, it's a very slippery slope between pumping information, you know, good information and free and open, open market information, you know, yeah, uh, a market of marketplace of ideas that uh, we all love, uh, versus the temptation to promote the United States. Uh, not not promote the United with States. That? No, it's in, in in a theoretical vacuum, which you know the world doesn't happen in a vacuum. But there's a proclivity for the abuse of power in any administration. Right. Okay, I get to that. to control. But you have to have confidence. In, I mean, there is a isn't in the world of foreign policy this whole era of self confidence in, in. I I would prefer healthy skepticism. Okay, <laughs> uh, but no, I I hundred percent agree, and this is. Uh, where most of these information operations and cracking through to the Russian public it would be most effective is not necessarily something that's government-run, but something that's society-run. Uh, and the the ability for, you know, part of that is educating our own society on what's going on. I should say that we're talking about Russia, but the real issues of China and, and I mean, it's, their lack of information or knowledge. It's, it's the same. Just, uh, to me, it's the falling. same problem manifests in different ways because nowadays authoritarian regimes – are close to perfecting information controls in cyberspace, and they're exporting these models. Right, and that's the thing I don't get, is with all the innovation and technology and wisdom that comes from these cyber experts, that they can be defeated by China's ability to, what did you, what did you say, they're close to? The perfecting information controls, right. right? How How is that in the modern age? 
that a government can be can perfect information control. I thought that's what we were getting away from with all of this distribution of information. It's terrible. So the you know a reality it is that cyberspace is in uh, you know underpinned by physical infrastructure that can be controlled, right? And you can place controls at you know there are, it's it's a good way to think about it in terms of choke points. Right. There are choke points in the Internet that can be manipulated and controlled. You know, it's not just the Great Firewall, uh, which is a major part of Chinese efforts. Um, but there are other things, too. That they're doing. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's part of an information strategy that incorporates cyberspace but is larger than cyberspace. So the last question I had was, do you have a reference in some of your writing um, to the role of politics that plays in all this? And I, could you just tell us what your thesis is on that? What, what is your concern? concern there so broadly you know uh i guess pivoting to a little more academic and then uh nailing down some of the specifics right politics impacts the way that cyber is implemented not only governments but particularly in the military right uh there are different political and just even you know sterile military bureaucratic which is still political uh Mm -hmm. but processes that impact the way that you develop strategy for deploying cyber capabilities in a military context, it undoubtedly affects your ability to stand up or stand down different organizations to house these capabilities. Uh, and it affects the ecosystem, you know, intellectually, technically, in partnerships with the private sector that you can develop new and innovative capabilities, right? So politics, you know, I wish this was just a technical problem that had a technical solution, but right. bureaucratic politics uh, in particular, you know, which is – Whole yeah, but, you, but you said earlier that the bureaucratic politics seems to have worked out pretty well for the current situation over at the Department of Defense. Right. It doesn't – got the right guy in the right place with the right organizational yeah. power and reach and access. Yeah. But, you know, it's – But it doesn't always have to work that way. Absolutely not. And, you know, just – it's more of a Band-Aid than a suture, right? It, it, it tamps down – when you have good leadership, it tamps down some of these problems, right? Like uh, you saw a lot more, you know, same organizational arrangement under uh, – Admiral Mike Rogers, uh, who was the commander of Cyber Command, director of NSA prior to Nakasone. Uh, there were some bureaucratic rifts there in how he approached the mission, right? He uh, rightly or wrongly approached it much more as an intelligence uh, and prioritized the intelligence equities. Uh, and there were some across DOD who saw him as abrasive. Um, so, again, leadership makes a difference. But, uh, you know, these, these bureaucratic and political dynamics don't go away. They're still there. It's just – our organizations and institutions can help channel them in more or less productive ways. Uh, and right now we've hit a sweet spot. It's just my hope is we keep the funding going. And, you know, with the way the budget looks right now, that's, uh, you know, my, my quick comment on the budget is Cybercom is getting some money to expand some of their teams. It's not enough given how inflation is, and I don't know where they're going to get the additional personnel from given that the services haven't met the recruiting standards. Well, what is the relative size of the cyber cybersecurity uh, resources in the Department of Defense to something else, the United States Navy or something like that? So a lot of that is hard to judge because more so than other areas. I, I have a colleague uh, who's originally out of the Netherlands who has done his best to put data to the ground on this, but it's just extremely hard to find budget, like accurate budget data on this. So a- anything that we get is a sliver, right, uh, because there's a lot more that goes into – the intelligence funds that we don't have direct insight into. Yeah. Uh, so the way that I try to look at it, obviously, you know, 
with the state of our military, we need to be spending on conventional capabilities. That has to be the priority, right? There's, there's, for better way, lack of way of putting it, there's been rot in the military, and we have to spend more to get it up to speed, right? Our military has shrunk. Our capabilities have decayed over time. We have to fix that. But as someone as a cyber person, right, like the more the better. Uh, this is, you know, this is a part of our operations, a part of our daily lives. You know, it intersects with all other domains of operations in ways that are just fundamental to carrying op- out operations. So any more money is better now. Uh, but the budget numbers right now for what Cybercom's getting, it's it's getting a bump, but I don't see how it can fulfill its desire to expand out its cyber mission forces. Um, but it's still less than 5% of the entire budget. Or oh, it's, I mean, it's still, it's a fraction, it's a right? Tiny, it's tiny, tiny fraction. It, it is, but it's, 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 growing. Tre- it's trending in the right direction, but it's not keeping up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a great conversation. Yeah. I've learned a lot, a lot, a lot, and I've revealed my ignorance, which is often happens on banter, oh. doesn't it, Phoebe? And every time it does, Phoebe gets discouraged and discouraged. Oh, no, thinks, no. What am I doing here? <laughs> showcasing our, the president oh, of our institute's lack of knowledge. But that's what we are about at AI, mm-hmm. learning new things and expanding the scope of knowledge. Phoebe, do you have anything to add? No, this is very helpful. Thank you. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you all having me on. Thanks. Thanks.